Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks for coming and uh, kind of reflecting and thinking a little bit with us on this whole business of theological education and the health of the church. Theological education has been part of my life, as I said, as uh, Jody said, for a lot of years now, since 1978, and uh, really, I live and breathe uh, that whole aspect. So it's a, a privilege to be invited to talk uh, about this kind of thing. It's also a great privilege to uh, partner with, with Kirk. Um, we've gotten to know each other over the last few years, and, uh, and it's been fun to uh, just get, get connected with him. We, we're kindred spirits, we think, alike. And uh, while we represent two different schools, um, uh, we see each other very much as partners in the gospel and partners in the ministry and partners in, uh, in theological education. And uh, in fact, <laughs> My son uh, teaches Hebrew at TBS, so uh, and we do share faculty and lectures and that kind of thing. We've had Kirk speak at our, our school, and it's been good. Um, so uh, our topic is this whole business of theological, uh, theological education and the health of the church. Our basic premise is, unless we're doing good theological education, the church is going to suffer. The church is going to struggle. And it's crucial for, uh, for what we're doing as the church and the mission of the gospel in the world. So I'm going to read. Uh, the way we're going to do this, I'm, I'm kind of covering the first page. And then Kirk is covering the back, the, se the second page. Uh, the, first part of, uh, the first page is more kind of a biblical theological uh, presentation of, think of things that I think are important. And, and Kirk and I both think are important. And then uh, Kirk is going to come and... Uh, talk about some of the more practical implications of what that means for the church and for us and, and that kind of thing. So, the presenters of this workshop believe that theological education is, impo uh, is important because the Church of Jesus Christ is built on the apostolic foundation. And consequently, Christianity is defined and expound by the apostles is critical to the health of Christians and churches. The proper understanding and application of the apostolic teaching requires theological reflection if Christians are going to meet the challenges of living for Christ in the 21st century. Theological education that is true to the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ helps, Lord Jesus helps Christians understand their past, present, and future and enables them to articulate the key doctrines of the faith and it prepares them to faithfully pass on to the present future generation what has been entrusted to them. Theological education is therefore not optional but essential for the health and vitality of the church. So when it comes to some biblical theological reflections, um, I want to jump on the phrase, um, the church is built on the apostolic foundation. And wh what I want to do is talk a bit about the place of the apostles and their, their uniqueness in history. And then I want to go to a text that I consider to be one of the most terrifying texts in Scripture. So... Um, the apostles are the foundation of the church, or at least they lay the foundation of the church, which, of course, is Jesus Christ. And when Christ said to Peter, uh, you are Petros, and on this, on this Petra, I'm going to build my church, he wasn't talking about the confession, he was talking about Peter. And no, Peter is not the first pope, well, that's not where we're going, but he is talking about the apostolic foundation. And that, in my view, is a, uh, what we call a synecdoche, apart from the whole to refer to the apostolic band. So, as we think about who the apostles are and how they were unique in the world, 
And I talk to my students about this all the time and usually gets, catches them by surprise. But the apostles were unique in the world. They, in that first century, they had the ability to do and be and, and lay the foundation of the church in ways that has never been repeated uh, in history. Uh, they had the power of life and death. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira understand that very well. Uh, they held the keys to the kingdom. And I'm not going to talk about what that means, but the reality is there's something distinct and unique about these guys and their apostolic uh, role. Had the keys to the kingdom. They had the ability to forgive or not forgive sins. And uh, we've, uh, you know, that John 20 passage has created consternation for many. What does it mean? And, uh, you know, we've tried to expand that into the life of the church, and maybe there is some some ways of doing that, but the first and foremost thing we understand is Jesus said that you have the power to forgive sins. And I take that seriously. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I do take it seriously. Um, they had the power to bind and loosen heaven and on earth, and, and on earth, Matthew 18 and 16. They had the promise of granting any agreement between two of them. And now that little phrase, if there's two, of the, two or three of you gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. And we often use that, we trivialize that to some kind of little Bible study thing where, you know, there's two or three of us gathered in Jesus' name, so Christ is in the midst of us. And we, tri- we trivialize that. That was an apostolic reality, that they had the ability to actually shape the action of God in the world as they as he worked as, as apostles in the apostolic band. John 16, they were led into all truth and shown things yet to come by the coming of the, of the Spirit, by the paraclete. And again, I think we've trivialized those statements into things that um, lose the impact of who these guys were and the, the empowerments that they had uh, through Christ and through the Spirit. And I would argue that that is a critical text because how the things that they were led, led, led into all truth and showed things to come specifically are given to us in the scriptures. And so uh, the, the way that they laid down that foundation, the way that they told us and, and passed on that truth is the Holy Scriptures, is the Bible. And uh, to trivialize that into something that, that is uh, some kind of, kind of doctrine of illumination for the rest of us I really think misses the, misses the impact that what they wrote as Holy Scripture under the guidance of the Spirit that we call inspiration or theopneustos, the God-breathed thing, um, is, is significant and hugely important if we're going to talk about building our theology on the foundation of the apostles. And then, of course, they laid the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, can throw that in there, which is, of course, is Jesus Christ, and warn those who build on it using terrifying language. So I'd like you to come with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. And I have to conf- confess to you, this, is, this passage terrifies me every time I go here. And those of us who are building on the superstructure, building the superstructure on that foundation, need to hear these words uh, regularly. So I'm going to start at verse 9. This is the whole Apollos Paul thing. The pronouns are important. For we, and I believe that he's referring to the apostles in the apostolic band, 
okay? I think that's really important because he's going to talk about you. So we, who are the apostles, are God's fellow workers. You, Corinthian church, all right, are God's field, God's building. So he's made a distinction between himself and the, ch the church. By the grace that God has given me, and again, I would use that as an apostolic synecdoche in that he is not just including himself, but the apostolic band. I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. And the someone else that is building on it, in my view, has to do with those who build into the superstructure of the church, specifically pastors, teachers, those who are taking that apostolic foundation, which is Jesus Christ, and moving it beyond the first century and building it into and, and building the superstructure of the church based on the, on the foundation. So I don't see this as a text that is kind of a general statement of all Christians. It has to do with some very specific people with their role in the church functioning as pastors and teachers. And someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds, those of us who are pastors and teachers. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which, of course, is Jesus Christ. If any man, back to that notion of those who are building on the apostolic foundation, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, judgment, will bring it to light. It will be real, revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Again, that is not some kind of general judgment seat of Christ kind of statement. This is a very specific uh, declaration statement to those who uh, build on the apostolic foundation. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escapes through the flames. Now, I don't know about you, but all of a sudden, I realize that there is some special accountability for, for people like us who are pastors and theologians and teachers and, and that kind of thing uh, to ensure that we are carefully embedded in the, in the apostolic foundation, which, as I mentioned before, rooted in things like John 16, John 14, John 20, John 16 in particular, led into all truth shown things to come, has to do with the scriptures. So we, we must be rooted in that. Then he says, don't you know that you, and that's a plural, okay? In other words, the Corinthian church, you yourselves are God's temple. And this is, a, this is the way that God expresses the new Israel. This is the way that God expresses the temple in the world, which, of course, uh, Christ declared himself as that temple. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and now that temple is the church. He is the head. And that God's spirit lives in you in the way that the spirit dwelt, God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple, so now it dwells in the church. And this is, by the way, this is a reference to the church. But now verse 17. If anyone, and that anyone is contextually defined by those who are building on the apostolic foundation in that previous paragraph. If anyone destroys God's temple, in other words, specifically referring to those who are pastors, theologians, teachers, those who have a specific responsibility to take the apostolic foundation and move it forward. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you, Corinthian church, are that temple. So, um, 
the health of the church, the success of the church, the growth of the church, everything about the church is, is finds its prosperity, its success, its moving forward in the competence and the orthodoxy and the commitment to the apostolic teaching foundation that we find specifically in scripture. So that's kind of a theological basis that I, that I want to lay here. And frankly, I want to scare the pajabers out of us. I really do. I, I've, this has been my career, my profession. Many of you have, are the same. And I look at this text and I just say, dear God, give me strength, give me grace, give me wisdom, and, make, and allow me to walk carefully, thoughtfully, and graciously in the, in the path of the apostles, specifically as we have them articulating their thinking in the, in the Holy Scriptures, in particular the New Testament. If building on the apostolic foundation is true, biblical knowledge, backgrounds, introduction, content, languages, and hermeneutics, theological competence, historical theology, biblical theology, systematic theology, moral theology, along with ecclesiastical skill, that is the praxis of ministry, on the part of those building on this foundation are crucial to the mission of the church and the articulation of the gospel. Now, there is an interesting uh, little conversation happening uh, now, and it's this whole business of this uh, pastor-scholar thing. And um, I, I, there's, there's been a couple, of, a couple of books put out there uh, you may be familiar with them. Uh, Pastor's Public Theologian by Van Hooser and uh, Owen Strachan. Uh, the Pastor's Theologian by uh, Gerald Highstand and Todd Wilson. But I remember reading a few years ago, uh, The Pastor as Scholar and Scholar as Pastor uh, by Don Carson and, and John Piper. And I don't know whether any of you have read that, but um, I remember cheering all the way through that. Just like, yeah, go man, go. And I was really enthused about what they were saying because it was calling, and especially from my perspective, it was calling pastors back into the world a serious reflection of scholarship uh, as they not only pastored their churches, but were the theologians of the church, as, as it has been historically so. And it was a call by both uh, um, uh, Carson and Piper to kind of get back to that a little bit. And and, you know, it's, it's been my experience as I've watched and, and be part, I'm a pastor myself, uh, that we have become much more interested in leadership theory than we have in biblical theology. I, I don't know, is anybody saying amen to that? I, I, I think it's, okay, I'm on a bit of a rant here, but it's deliberate, it's in my notes. And any, anybody who's been my students knows that. This happens, but what do we, as pastors, what do we call the place that we work now? What do we call it? Our, you're all terrified. We call it our office, correct? Pastor's office. Historically, at least in kind of old times, as it were, what was that place called? It was the pastor's study. And while it's only a word, it's a complete philosophical and, and ministry shift. 
An office is a place where you do leadership and, and administration. Study is where you bury yourself in the word of God and prepare and think through as a theologian and as a pastor and a biblicist and all that kind of thing. And I think that's a symptom of our times. And the conferences that, that we go to are so much driven by leadership theory. And, and I'm not suggesting that leadership theory is, is bad. It's, it's, it's good. But everything rises and falls on leadership has almost become canonical in its status. Versus Jesus, who said in Mark 10, not so with you as he challenged the power structures of the Gentiles. Anyhow, just throwing a few things out there for you to think about. But these books call for, for um, pastors to serve seri as serious theologians and solid biblical scholars, and it's called for biblical scholars to work hard in participating in serious pastoral work. Oh, it's more difficult than it seems. And as I, as I read Piper's and, and uh, Carson's book uh, a while ago, as I said, I was cheering all the way through. But there's a really interesting article that's just, just appeared in, uh, it's, uh, in, on, in Christianity Today, and it's on, on the web, uh, by uh, Andrew Wilson. And I don't know whether you guys have seen this, but um, it's an article entitled, Why Being a Pastor Scholar is Nearly Impossible. And he talks, he talks about three tensions. He talks about the specialist generalist tension, the practical theoretical tension, and the university slash seminary church tension. And I think the push is good that we push pastors into more serious and uh, theological reflection and that, we, and that we push professors in the seminary back into the church. I think that push is good. And my colleague, Stan Fowler, who is sitting here, has a phrase, scholars in service of the church. And I really think that's important, that as we do our scholarship, we recognize that we're in service of the church. So I think the push is good. But, as Wilson points out in his article, to do really, really good, solid credible scholarship as a pastor is really hard. Not just time, but the tensions of ministry. And so there's a place for the seminary. And this is kind of where I'm going. There's a place for the seminary. There's a place for where we bring together people who are gifted and, and trained in, in Greek and Hebrew and exegesis and hermeneutics and, and biblical content and moral theology and systematic theology, systematic theology and, and church history and that kind of thing. There's a place for that. And uh, those places called seminaries need to be strong and, and uh, vital and supported and that kind of thing. And I know this is a little bit of self-aggrandizing here, self uh, whatever, but, but if we're going, if the health of the church is rooted in, root, being rooted, is based on the, on the uh, foundation of the, of the apostolic, on the foundation of the apostles, things like seminaries need to remain strong and vital so that we can effectively serve the church, scholars in service of the church. And pastors can, be, can come and be trained well in uh, biblical theology and the things that, uh, that, that we all need to learn. 
So I'm going to leave it there and uh, turn it over to Kirk. All right, thank you, Dave. I just wanted to echo uh, my agreement with everything that he said um, in his introduction about uh, the two of us uh, getting to know each other and working together uh, as, as uh, Baptist schools in the province of Ontario and also in Canada. If you know anything about the history of uh, Baptists uh, in this part of the world, you know that uh, both schools in one way or another go way back and and <clears throat> there's been conflict, there's, uh, there's been agreements and disagreements. Uh, we live in a very wonderful time uh, today where there has been, I think, a real coming together in the truth of the gospel, and this has opened up uh, new opportunities for us to work together as perhaps never before, and I hope that we can continue to uh, utilize those and, and uh, see the work of God go forward uh, in a very uh, wonderful way in this uh, period of history. Now, some of what I'm going to say is a little bit of, uh, well, it's tied into what Dave said, obviously, and there'll be a little bit of overlap. But my responsibility, he was uh, giving us a biblical, uh, theological uh, kind of uh, framework, foundation for, for what was said, and I'm supposed to look at the implications of that. So if you turn to the second uh, page or the back of the sheet. I don't know how you've received it. Uh, you'll see that I've got a whole bunch of points I wrote down there. You know if you're watching the clock that I can't uh, stay too long on any one of them, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll make an attempt here. The basic assumption that uh, I'm working with when, I, when we talk about uh, theological education and its importance for the health of the church, uh, the basic assumption is that it's a particular kind of theological education. Uh, there's lots of varieties of theological education out there that aren't worth a hoot when it comes to the health of the church. In fact, they're detrimental to the church. Uh, we're talking about a, uh, an education that is uh, biblically based, and by that I mean it's based upon the uh, teachings of the Word of God. It receives uh, Scripture as being uh, God's inspired, authoritative, and errant Word. It understands that God has revealed Himself uh, in history, progressively, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, it understands that the Scriptures uh, find their focus in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings Old and New Testament together, and uh, He's the one that uh, we must uh, be constantly uh, drawn to in our study of the Word of God. Uh, I use the phrase gospel-centered as a second description, uh, thinking not just about uh, the Christocentric focus of uh, theology, but I'm thinking about theology that's done by Christian believers, uh, done by those who have known the regenerating work of the Spirit of God in their lives, and those who are seeking to bring every thought into captivity to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to acknowledge that uh, much harm has been done in the theological world by people who are just not Christian believers. Uh, they, they approach the theological task uh, from a purely academic standpoint, an intellectual standpoint. That's not good enough. Uh, the Scripture, if we're to understand it, 
requires uh, internal knowledge that comes from the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts initially when we become Christians, and then an ongoing work as we study the Scriptures and pray over those Scriptures and, and ask God by His Spirit to lead us uh, into His truth. So that's what I'm thinking of when I think of you know, gospel-centered theology. We need to be historically informed. We are not the first people to read the Bible or to reflect on it theologically. It's, uh, I think, one of the marks of the present age, and maybe it's the mark of every present age, no matter how far back you go in history, that those of us who are living in the present tend to think, even though we might not say this, that we're smarter than those who have gone before. Uh, if we think that way, it's usually because we're ignorant of those who have gone before. We've never taken time to read what they have to say, and that's particularly true in the area of theology. So, so we are you know, coming to the Bible, seeking to ascertain its message, coming as believers, but we are also uh, recognizing that people have been reading and studying the Bible for uh, a long, long time, thousands of years. And we need to be aware of what they have said and building on that historic uh, foundation or historical foundation, uh, we, look at the text, uh, we look at the text afresh in our own day and, uh, and we ask ourselves, how does it apply? And that leads me to that fourth point, cultural engagement or uh, contemporary engagement. Uh, we are called not to fight the battles or to refight the battles of a bygone era unless those battles pertain to something that we're facing in our day. We need to be aware of, of the battles that have been, uh, have been fought and the lessons that can be learned from those battles, but we need to address uh, our contemporary situation. We need to understand our culture. We need to... Uh, uh, understand where Satan is attacking the church in this day, and then bring the resources of Scripture to bear upon that attack. And then theology must be practical. And by practical, I'm, I'm thinking that it ought to be done to the glory of God. Uh, it ought to be done to the uh, building up, the benefit of the church, and it needs to be practical in that it needs an apologetic, evangelistic uh, aspect to it where we're thinking about the, the world beyond the church, the mission field, that place that, that we are supposed to go into with the good news of the gospel. This kind of theological education, Bible-based, Christ-centered, historically informed, uh, culturally engaged, contempor uh, contemporary kind of engagement, practical this, we believe, both Dave and I believe, is very important for the health of the church. Why, you say? Well, I've uh, given you 14 reasons. I probably could have uh, come up with some more if I thought about this a little longer, but uh, these 14 came very, very quickly, and uh, they are the ones that occur to me uh, right away for whatever reason. Uh, I think we need theological education, if we are going to, uh, if we're going to have theologically literate leaders. And we don't always have theologically literate leaders. You cannot assume, uh, even in southern Ontario, that you can go into any town or city and find a church where uh, on a given Sunday morning or any other day of the week, someone will stand up who actually knows what they're talking about. 
they may have the gift of gab. They may have uh, prepared a nice little devotional, but something that is rooted in a, in a, a proper understanding of the text that has contemplated how that text applies to the culture and then has taken time to, uh, you know, to spell that out. This is still, even in our day, uh, a very rare find, and when it is found, it's uh, precious indeed. We need theologically literate leaders. We need uh, pastors who are theologically literate, elders, deacons. Uh, we need people who are serving at other levels in terms of Sunday school, Christian education, outreach, and, uh, and, and the seminary uh, plays a role in that. It's also essential for uh, vital, growing, mature spirituality. We don't want to, we don't want to miss that. Uh, theological education that is uh, true to, uh, to you know, the, the needs that are spoken about in Scripture is not just something that fills our heads with ideas, but it's something that moves our hearts. It's something that draws us closer to the Lord. Uh, maybe it's my experience first as a pastor and then kind of going back into the academy that, that uh, sometimes I'm not sure where the line is between the lecture and, and preaching or teaching and preaching. Uh, you know, people have tried to define uh, what the differences are, but it's, it's a thin line at best. Uh, where our theology is the kind of theology that I described earlier. So that even in the seminary classroom, there should be uh, an emphasis made to apply the truth of what we're learning to the students that are sitting in front of us. And we should never assume that all of those students, even though they've been vetted by the administration, necessarily even know the Lord. I mean, it's, it wouldn't be hard to demonstrate that some of the greatest heretics of have come out of uh, wonderful churches and uh, have had sound theological, a sound theological education and then have turned their backs upon that. And so we, we need to be challenging people. Where are you with the Lord? How does this fit into your life? Uh, what, what changes do you need to make in light of what we've studied uh, today? Uh, theological education is required by the apologetic uh, mission of the church. Uh, we're supposed to uh, be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. And if we're going to give a reason for the hope that we have in uh, 21st century Canada, we have, uh, we've got to know the Bible well, and we've got to know how uh, it applies to the issues that we're confronted with in this day. Uh, the, the church sometimes does much better reaching those who are not that well-educated. But as people receive more education, in, they educate themselves out of the church and out of the Christian faith. I think that's one of the problems we're seeing with the 20-something age group. Uh, and these people, you know, they go, they, they, I'm talking about uh, children born into Christian families with a Christian father and mother. They go to Sunday school, they go to youth group, and then when they finish high school and they head off to university, uh, they also head out of the church and in some cases never to return. Uh, well, there are a lot of things going on in that uh, kind of scenario, uh, but one of the things that uh, it, it reminds us of is the need to prepare people for what they're going to face in the world 
uh, by giving them not just uh, cliche answers, but giving them answers that are rooted in the biblical text and that challenge them to, to think and to think hard about what the Bible says and, and what the world is saying and, and, and to demonstrate its inconsistencies and to demonstrate that it's really impossible to, uh, to, to live given the world's assumptions, uh, to live a, a whole life uh, unless you're constantly stealing from, uh, from uh, biblical concepts. Uh, the seminary, as Dave uh, mentioned, represents expert specialized instruction. I like to think that it's the difference if you compare, you know, what goes on uh, in a typical congregation with what's going on in a uh, seminary. It's the difference between a uh, general practitioner in the medical realm and, and a specialist. The general practitioner, that's uh, what a pastor often is. He has to uh, know uh, a, a lot or a little bit about a lot of things. And he's confronted with so many different needs within the church. And there's so many demands upon his time. And, and uh, he's constantly scrambling to you know, stay abreast of, of uh, what he needs to know to minister to that flock, which is always changing. Churches are always changing as people come and go and, and so that's a never-ending job. Uh, the seminary enables us to bring together uh, those who have uh, certain gifts, who have uh, certain educational experiences, uh, who have uh, certain ambitions and, and, uh, and skills, bring them together in one place and uh, enable them to teach uh, for the benefit of the church as a whole. And, and, it, and we need people who are specialists in Greek and in Hebrew. We need people who uh, have had the opportunity and have the ability to take the time to sort out uh, all the, uh, the, the details of, of biblical or systematic theology or to wrestle with apologetic issues or pastoral theology issues or ethical issues. Uh, we, we need church historians and so forth and so on. And yes, you can have pastors who have an interest in one or more of these areas, and, and they can be very, very well educated in these areas and share that uh, education with their flock. Uh, but the seminary uh, brings these people together, and, and as a unit, they're able to bless the church in a way that, that I think it's difficult for individual congregations and, and pastors of individual congregations to do. Uh, theological education also fosters an awareness of the bigger picture. Here I'm just thinking of the fact, i thinking of my own students at TBS. I've got a mentoring group uh, this uh, semester, and we, we went around the group and got them to introduce themselves and, uh, and tell us where they're from and why they're at the school. And uh, in my group this semester, I've got, I've got someone from Korea, I've got someone from China, I've got someone from Latvia, I've got someone from the Ukraine, I've got someone from Montreal, I've even got someone from Toronto. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, here I sit looking at this uh, group of young men that God has brought together, you're thinking, this is amazing, this is really amazing. Uh, you think of God's uh, sovereign uh, care for His people and His providential uh, governing of our lives to, uh, to bring us together for this moment in time to interact with one another. And, and there's a sense in which in that group we're able to transcend uh, just the experiences of a local church or a denomination uh, or even uh, a country. 
and we're able to share and interact with one another first and foremost as Christians. If I can jump ahead uh, uh, a little bit, uh, well, I guess I put, I, 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 this is number seven. In this regard, it expands our network of connections because I, I, said, to, I said to the fellows, you know, uh, you're here for a year, two years, three years, four years, and then you'll go who knows where, but you will be amazed where you run into each other again in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years if the Lord uh, lets you live that long. And, and so you, you make this network of connections when you, when you participate in a seminary program or you take a class, uh, and, and uh, this, these things have surprising ways of, of bringing forth... Um, you know, fruit and being a source of encouragement and, and inspiration in, uh, in years to come. Uh, uh, seminary provides, our theological educa- education provides the challenge and structure to grow spiritually. So we do have uh, things like mentoring groups where we pray for one another, where we discuss uh, sometimes personal problems, sometimes uh, ministry problems that people are facing as they're involved in, uh, in the field education, that kind of thing. And uh, we can, uh, you know, uh, talk about, you know, what it is that's going on and, and what they need to do to uh, address that problem and, and even what the Lord is saying to them, how He's working in their lives and what He's teaching them about themselves. That's very, very important. It's not just, it's not just the cultivation of the mind, it's the cultivation of the, of the whole person. Uh, it also makes possible ongoing theological education. One of the things that uh, we see at TBS, and I'm sure Heritage sees this as well, uh, is the growth of things like intensives and, and uh, night uh, school courses. Uh, and those attract uh, our regular full-time and part-time students, but they also attract uh, Christians from the broader community, uh, sometimes church leaders, uh, sometimes uh, people who are Christian serving in churches but not in a leadership position, they come and they take the courses because it gives them an opportunity to delve a little more deeply into uh, an aspect of Scripture or theology or, or Christian practice. And I think that's really important uh, as, we, as we go forward. It's not just bringing people together to get a, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or, or, or a doctor's degree. It, it's this ongoing service to the church. Uh, where uh, people can come and, and for uh, a certain period of time uh, can uh, learn some new material. Uh, theological uh, education uh, facilitates the discussion of issues, research, uh, publishing. I mean, how many uh, books would be missing from the shelves of our libraries if we were to exclude the books uh, written by, you know, by full-time, part-time professors, uh, people who uh, are paid, are compensated uh, so that they can uh, spend their time doing research, writing books, writing journal, journal articles, uh, you know, wrestling with the, uh, with the issues uh, of, of the day. Uh, it privileges, theological education does, it privileges enforced learning over self-study, I know at one level, when we, we say this to students, uh, nothing that you're really learning at seminary, you couldn't learn on your own. If, and it's a huge if, if you were disciplined enough to do it. 
But the fact of the matter is most of us are not disciplined enough to do it. So we, we need what we call enforced learning. That is, we need you to come and enroll in a course and pay, and pay money, not just so that we might be supported, so that you might feel, man, I paid money for this. I better get my money out of it. I better do the work that's required. Is that kind of incentive sometimes or partly? And then in addition to that, we say, well, you know, there are deadlines. You've got book reports. You've got research papers, and they need to be done on, on this particular date. And, of course, students always say at the beginning of the semester, yes, yes, no problem. They write it all down and put it in all their fancy electronic devices. And then as it gets closer to the, to the due date, it's, oh, professor, professor, you're not going to believe what's happened to me. <laughs> and all the tales of woe we hear. But you see, we try to remind them that's part of enforced learning, you see. And, and, and then the course comes to an end after 12 weeks. And then there's an examination and you've got to show up in that examination room, and you've got to put something down on that paper that's, that's worthy of a passing mark, right? Yeah, you could, you, could, you could learn systematics. You could learn biblical theology. You could probably teach yourself uh, Greek and Hebrew on your own if you were uh, very highly motivated, but we're not, and so we need this kind of uh, structure. It allows for depth of instruction. I know as a pastor... There are lots of things that you would like to take people uh, into on, on a Sunday morning uh, in your uh, exposition of the text that you just cannot uh, because of the, the mixed nature of the, of the congregation. Uh, over time, if you're skillful, a little tricky, uh, you, can, you can bring them down some of these paths, but you've got to be very uh, patient and very careful. Uh, whereas you get into a seminary classroom and we can say, okay, listen, uh, this is seminary, so we're going to get right into the center of this issue. And then they say, oh, uh, I'm having trouble following you. Uh, that's all right. We expect that. You just hang in there. We'll, we'll keep at this. It will become clear as, as time goes on. Uh, it's also uh, a context where we can analyze current issues and trends. I've said enough about that. And then there's a very practical matter of establishing credibility, standards, and recognized form. This isn't the be-all and end-all, because I know full well that, that you can tell within five minutes whether someone's degree is worth the paper it's written on. Uh, but on the other hand, we do need, uh, we do need some standards. We, we need to uh, uh, have uh, uh, some credibility that comes from saying, uh, you know, here is a person who has engaged in fairly arduous study over a period of time. Uh, they've been reviewed by those who are experts in the field, who have gone before, and, and they have, uh, they've done the work that's been required of them. And therefore, you know, they receive this kind of stamp or mark of approval. There's, there's some value in that. Uh, as others have said, can you imagine being operated on uh, by a surgeon who, who learned it all on YouTube? <laughs> or <laughs> uh, we don't even want, with our high-tech cars, a mechanic who learned it all on YouTube. I mean, you can learn lots of things on YouTube, but there's still a place for uh, some standards and, and, uh, and uh, some recognized uh, uh, areas of study that uh, have a start point and an end point and have... Uh, you know, things you've just got to know in order to receive uh, certification. Let me end with this. The irony of it all is that the health of the church 
affects the health of theological education. I mean, our subject has been theological education and the health of the church, but I wanted to flip it on its, on its head or turn it around. Uh, it's true, theological education, we believe, is important for the health of the church for these reasons, and, and there's probably more that we could give. But it is also true that the health of the church affects theological education. Ultimately, uh, seminaries and Bible colleges serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the other way around. Uh, we need churches who will identify people because of their uh, spirituality, because of their gifts and abilities and the call of God on their life. Uh, they will identify people who would benefit from uh, this kind of intensive study in preparation for uh, future service. Uh, that, that's the job of the church, to identify those kinds of people and to point them in our direction. Uh, we need churches to support students who are, are called to study uh, the, the Bible and to study theology. Uh, we need churches, pastors, leaders who will, will mentor and provide uh, very practical help for those in the midst of their studies. And uh, we need uh, opportunities to serve. You know, people just need to get in there, and they need to be given a job to do and then have someone that they can lean upon uh, when they run into trouble or if they have, have questions. So what we need more than anything else is for churches to send us their very best people. I'm sure it's true at Heritage as it is with us. We have many more requests for trained people than we have trained people to send out uh, into uh, the Christian world. And uh, we need to think about, you know, where are we going to get the next generation of leaders? I think sometimes, especially in Canada, we somehow think they're going to magically uh, appear. It's not going to happen without uh, some uh, forethought, without some uh, hard work, without some planning. And the truth of the matter is we're all in this thing together. Uh, churches need uh, theological education, the seminary attempts to provide that, but the seminary needs uh, churches to get behind them, to support them, to help them, and, and, and to uh, uh, send to them uh, the very best people that they have, uh, looking ultimately to the glory of God and the good of the church in years to come. I'll leave you with this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, 1 and 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. That's basically uh, what theological education, if it is true to uh, the biblical mandate, is attempting to do. We have all benefited from those who have gone before. They have poured themselves into our lives. They have prayed for us. They have instructed us. They have challenged us. And now it is our turn to, to give back and to take what we have learned and to faithfully pass it on to uh, other people and another generation of, of uh, Christians. Uh, with the hope that they will do that in turn, and this process will continue until Jesus Christ 
uh, comes again. Okay, that concludes my uh, portion of the talk. Uh, we had uh, intended to uh, finish in time to give you a chance to ask uh, questions. And, uh, and, and we've managed to do that. So uh, if anybody has any questions, uh, Dave... Sure. So three years ago um, at Emmanuel, we did a survey of over 150 pastors across uh, conservative evangelical denominations. And the report we got back was 85% of them surveyed said they did not believe it was their job to help identify the next generation of leaders for the church. And the same percentage said they did not believe it was the local church's job to identify. And the total of those for individual pastors under 40 came close to 97%. Did they say why? They just said that's up to God or the spirit or the individual to make their decision. It, 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 was, a, it was a result that was completely astonishing. Hyper-seminaryism. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Paul? Okay, what was the first part of that question? The premise there, what was that again? The Basically, it's the, um, the uh, softening of academic standards for high school students coming up uh, ill-prepared for the academic world. Uh, challenges with students who are ill-prepared I, I haven't, maybe, Dave, you might speak to it because you've been at this uh, longer than I've, I, yeah, we, we face some, some students that come to us are very well prepared, and some students are not, and, and some students uh, who are not well prepared get up to speed very quickly, and, and, and other students do not. Some who come in, uh, and we think they're going to do really well, they, they, they fade away and drop out and disappear. One of the amazing things in my own experience is that when you get a new crop of students in, in September every year, uh, you know, in your own head, you're kind of doing like what Samuel did when he looked at uh, Jesse's sons. And you're going, oh, yeah, that, there's potential there, potential there. But I, and I always am reminded at graduation that I'm not a very good judge of these things because some of the people that I thought would... Uh, you know, would really turn out well, are not, don't even graduate. And others that you completely overlook initially grow and grow and grow, and it's absolutely amazing what takes place over two or three or four years. So, yeah, yeah the, uh, the, the response I would have, it, and it, I would say it functions more at the Bible college level than the, Bible, than the seminary level. Students coming to us at the college level, and Mark, you might be able to re respond to this. By the way, this is Mark Bond. He's the president of Emmanuel Bible College. Um, and my colleague, uh, Stan Fowler, sitting beside him. Um, my, my, over these years that I've been involved in this thing, yeah, I would say that the, uh, the change in the Bible college students that are coming to us are not as biblically literate as they were, say, in the 80s when I was, there, when I was teaching students then. But they're certainly no less passionate spiritually. And sometimes their lack of biblical literacy is made up by 
their ability to use technology that uh, in many yeah. ways um, allows them to go above and beyond those students in the 80s who were more biblically literate when they came to us. So they catch up pretty quickly and then move, move beyond. The other thing that I'm seeing, in, especially in the Bible College, in compared to the students I taught in the 80s, and some of you here are those students that I taught in the 80s, um, is that I see a much broader world, under, world view of, of the kingdom of God and the mission of the gospel and um, that kind of thing. Perhaps it's wrapped a bit more around the justice issues than, than the, more, the, the more traditional kind of church planting missionary kind of thing, but I just love our college students in their passion to reach the world with the gospel in its fullest and broadest nature and identity. So I am in no way, shape, or form one of those that kind of diss this new generation of students that are coming among us. They energize me in ways that I wasn't energized by the students in the 80s. Yeah. And you, you, you can't get away with what I'd call hokey answers, right? You, you, you better tell them the straight goods. You know, you don't give them that sugar-coated uh, version of, uh, of things. You, 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 need to, you need to anticipate what they've already heard or what they're going to hear, and they need to, to hear it from you, and then you need to, uh, you know, by God's grace, try to give them, uh, you know, something that they can hold on to and something that they can think about and work through, Yeah. Now, and I think that's proliferation of technology, too. They're exposed to so much, but go ahead. Well, I kind of address that two ways. One, we're assuming that the people that are trained, the reason why they're trained is that they would then in turn pass that on to the people that are under their charge. And then with the idea of the ongoing education as well, we've tried to you know, open our doors, I know Heritage as well, to, to the Christian community at large. And, uh, and you know, the, the courses are not just restricted to um, people who are enrolled in a school or in programs. They're open to, you know, to anybody who wants to come in and learn. So in that way, we're trying to... Oh, okay. Preach it. <laughs> preach, preach it, brother. Uh, because the, the same issue comes with, with what our brother asked here about um, the quality of the student or whatever coming in. We, we have a generation, several generations, that are far less biblically literate than they've ever been. When you do theological education, you have to presume some degree of biblical literacy and biblical understanding. Um, and so when we have, whether it's the, the person in the pew or 
in a, in a group in our church or it's a student coming through, we're dealing with a culture now and a culture that's in our churches as well as in our society that, that creates a bifurcation between those with the professional qualifications and those who do the practical stuff. And one of the things we're wrestling with, and I'm sure that it's, it's at the other institutions, is how do you create those who can do theological and practical reflection in the pew as well? Um, we have, there are over 200,000 Bible college graduates in Canada who are lay leaders in churches. The majority of those are baby boomers. And church after church, as you go to, is starting to say they're finding difficulty finding leadership for the next generation because those people that went for one year to a theological institution had a grounding so they could take what the pastor was preaching and interpret it to the rest of the congregation. So we need within our churches to figure out ways based upon the changing modalities in our society to educate our people and start theological education at the age of two or younger. Yeah. And, and that's an intentional program in our churches. And it's a cultural shift, I think. Okay. There was a question back there. Dave, do you want to say anything about that? Go ahead. <laughs> well, McMaster Divinity School is a, is a seminary, right? It's connected to McMaster University, but it is not their, what you might call their religious studies department, right? So I'm not sure uh, where, where you're going, uh, other than to say to have uh, Mac and others attached to universities, I think is a very, very good thing. I'm, I'm enthused and excited about that. And for what MACDIV is doing in terms of not only its MDiv and MTS programs, but moving into their PhD programs, like I am an enthusiastic supporter of what they're doing there. My son is a graduate of, of MACDiv and the PhD program. And so to have that kind of level of theological education and have it connected with the university and have that venue where they can, can work in the context of, of scholarship in the secular world, I, I think that's a gift, I think that's a blessing, and I think we need to encourage it. So that would be my first response to your question. I think that's where you were going. But. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And uh, but the, only, the only caveat with any, with any school is as long as it's, you know, biblically-based, gospel-centered, historically, you know, it's as long as those things are in place, then uh, no matter how that education is delivered, whether it's in connection with the university or separate from it, uh, that's fine. It's more... You know the commitment, the the commitment of the professors and what they're actually teaching. That's that's more a concern than, than the structural. No, they, they well, it depends what they're taking. I, my oldest son is doing his PhD at University of Toronto um, in history. Uh, so I'm not a verse. It's just, I, I guess the question is, yeah, Christians have gone. Christians have gone into all sorts of, into settings that are not evangelical and in some cases quite hostile to evangelical truth and have survived. It, they, have to be, they have to be careful. 
I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's easy. And I, and I think one of the problems that schools have got into historically is when you send people away to get training there, if they don't, you know, keep their roots in the scripture, they can drift, subtly drift over time, and, and then you get institutional drift, and, and, and you run into real trouble. So, yes, it can be done. It needs to be done very, very, uh, very carefully. Yeah. Uh, yes, back there, no. Well, that's what you would have at, I'm assuming, Emmanuel Heritage, TBS. We all have, uh, you know, statements of faith uh, that the professors are required to sign. And, and teaching in the classroom comes from, you know, comes from that perspective. So uh, they, would, they would all be confessional schools, right? And I think, I think that it doesn't, it doesn't make us immune to error, uh, but, but it, does, it does let the students know what they're going to get when they come there, and it also gives the, you know, it also is a way of making sure the theological education stays online. Now, in that setting, I think it's important for the professors to be aware of what other people are saying and interact with it, not try to run and hide from it. But, uh, but at, the, at the end of the day, they need to be clear about, uh, it's not just giving people all these theological options. I think we need to come down and say, this is what we believe the Scripture teaches, you know, where Scripture's clear. One last question here, and I think we've got to stop. But. A number of years ago, Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Killing of Evangelical Minds. That's from an American perspective. I thought it was very interesting. Um, but from a Canadian perspective, and my sample size is too small, it would be very anecdotal. I'm just wondering from your perspective, because you maybe have a, well, you do, you have a much broader pulse of uh, the evangelical church in Ontario, at least. Uh, and my question is, is there a resistance, as Noel describes in that book, among conservative evangelicals to higher theological education in Canada or specifically in Ontario? Or is that more of an I certainly haven't seen it. I think that, that may have been in a phase a few years ago, but the students that I'm getting and the churches that I'm, I'm interacting with, it, it's almost the opposite, that they're saying, we want more, we want you to, want you to come. One of the questions here that uh, I'd like to you know, respond to in terms of how do we help the church, one of the things that I know Carrick and myself and Stan and, and Mark and, and other profs at these, we're more than happy to go into churches and help with their, with their educational programs do these Monday night institutes, uh, do these short kind of uh, lay kind of things. We're enthusiastically involved in that kind of stuff. And what I find when I go to these things and I'm asked to come to teach a course on whatever, um, on a weeknight, it's really well received and they want to hear from someone who is competent and capable and experienced and, and that kind of thing. So I'm not, I'm not picking up that skepticism that, that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would, last thing I'd say is uh, I, I don't think you have any problem, I, I don't think there's, I've never had a problem with theology as long as the theology is, is uh, kind of on fire. You know, if it's vital, living, touches the heart, it, the, the problem is not theology. The problem is either the deadness of the people you're trying to teach or the deadness of the teacher. You know, where, where the Lord blesses it and uses it, it it's glorious because you're, you're, trying to comprehend God's revelation in Jesus Christ.
All right, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, we, we, we'll stay around and talk later, but we, we've gone over time a little bit. Thank you very much for your attention on behalf of both of us.